Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Keith Glendon on the Rider Flex podcast. Hi, Keith. How are you? Hey, good, Steve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I love, love your studio, your setup. It looks professional. I, I like it. Yeah, it is. I'm very fortunate to be sitting in a studio that's sitting in a facility in Marquette, Michigan, that is a, a co-working community uh, that that I uh, inadvertently became the founder of <laughs> uh, in 2020 um, and, and have recently passed that mantle on to my co-founders, but still a founding member. And uh, I, one of the perks is I get to come in and use the studio. So uh, really, really fabulous. Yeah, the lighting's good. The sound is good. I wish all of our guests had that set up so often. You know, the lighting is one thing, right? I think listeners, especially when they're driving and listening and they're not watching the YouTube channel, they don't they don't mind if the lighting sucks. But the audio is critical, right? And so, yeah. We, and, you know, we have the fortunate experience of having gone through in 2020, uh, when shortly after launching a co-working space, uh, the entire state went into lockdown. Right. Uh, it, 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 we found ourselves in this strange situation of trying to figure out what, what on earth to do. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and so we experimented with a lot of things, including um, our own podcast series. We started doing some fireside uh -huh. chats, we called them. Uh, and we were we were engaging local uh, innovators and entrepreneurs at the local level. Uh, of course, you know, the World Wide Web is global, but we were focused on trying to just promote locally while the doors were closed, thinking mm -hmm. thinking it was going to be temporary. Wound up, of course, being you know nearly two years. Uh, but but that taught us a lot about because none of none of us were audio engineers or videographers, and so it was only through uh, some pretty interesting experiments, including. One uh, where we got Zoom bombed by hackers uh, who waved Nazi flags around and came in playing strange music and, and, and saying insulting things. And so wow. we learned the hard way about uh, how to make sure you had your security together and how you made sure that you had good audio and you had good production control if you were going live because a lot of our uh, events that we did were live events so, i see i see uh, we, we were we were experimenting with direct you know fully authentic direct to viewer <laughs> uh, that's interesting that they i didn't know that that was even possible i didn't know people could like jump into your meetings and and do stuff like that that's i mean I, yeah yeah they can wow. get a hold of if you publicize the code the, the failure that we had done was the in our registration process we had uh, inadvertently had a setting wrong and so the public the code was published uh, on the public internet i see uh, and that it got picked up somewhere so yeah interesting interesting well i, I appreciate uh, the setup though it looks it looks really good by the way is the podcast still happening do you want to mention that at all or direct people uh, it, it has kind of morphed because since that time we've actually launched uh upper michigan's only chapter of startup grind so startup grind x marquette is is now our chapter here and okay. we now have taken that uh that 
format of podcasts, it's not so much podcasting anymore as doing fireside chats in the startup grind environment. And so we're still doing them. Uh, in fact, uh, next week um, on the 21st, we've got Rich Sheridan, who is the CEO of Menlo Enterprises and the author of uh, Joy Incorporated and okay. a couple of other okay. uh, 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 chief joy officer. Um, he's, he's a really fantastic guy. Uh, and, and Startup Grind is a really wonderful network. Uh, which is why we joined it. It's it's a founder-led, um, in, in many ways, a founder-led network of uh, innovators and entrepreneurs around the world um, who are are supporting one another in a global community. Nice. So yeah, it's it's still running. Uh, if you look up Startup Grind Marquette or just check out Startup Grind and you'll see it there. And I think uh, probably on the Campfire Coworks uh, website as well. Okay, very good. Appreciate you sharing that. Before we get into your career and Lucid Coast, Tell me about Keith, the person, family, mom, dad, siblings, where you grew up. Give me some early stuff if you don't mind. Yeah, you might want to, you might have to keep a, a rein on me because you open okay. up a question like that, it could go all over the place. But let's start with the basics, you know, the basics where I was, uh, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, which is in lower Michigan. And I was uh, imported to Upper Peninsula of Michigan when I was probably like a, a year old. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I consider myself a youper. There are, are dyed-in-the-wool youpers who would not agree with that, but, you know, more and more the, the, the UP, as it is called, uh, and the youpers uh, are people who inhabit the UP, if you haven't uh, heard of that term. Okay. Um, you know, traditionally, they, the UP was a, a culturally very separate to the Lower Peninsula, and it was populated by, um, well, First and foremost, it was originally populated by Native, Amer Native Americans, the Ojibwa mm -hmm. uh, and the Chippewa and um, the Anishinaabe people. And uh, of course, when it was settled by Europeans here in this region, it was largely uh, Finnish. Uh, and a lot of miners came to this region. And okay. this area is very much like the, the geography of Finland. And I think that probably has to do with, with uh, uh, you know the ethos of of this region okay um anyway that's a lot that probably more backdrop than you want but i tend to do that so i, I grew up here uh the child of uh of, of a carpenter and and a teacher oh. uh and All right. um All right. spent most of my life here you know marquette michigan back in the 70s 80s was was still pretty um pretty remote and it was a very small town and our industry was mining uh, forestry, um, a lot of uh, construction, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and we didn't have an awful lot when it came to, you know, the kind of culture that you see in small town America today, certainly in Marquette. Uh, but it was a great place to grow up because I grew up fishing and hunting. And, uh, you know, with our, the biggest excitement I had was the local roller rink. And so I was kind of a roller skating rink rat growing up. And, um didn't have is that, why, is that why you're a ref or something with roller derby now i saw something yeah yeah. yeah so that's that yeah that that convergence came later but yeah uh, okay it, exactly okay. i became um, a, i became an official as a, a referee in roller derby which i've i've hung up that career uh for now anyway I got too busy to be a ref. <laughs> yeah, so never, that was the backdrop. And then I, you know, I was, uh, I was a kid that never really quite fit into school. And, oh. you know, part of that had to do with probably my neurotype and, and some of the things that were going on in my life, but also part of it, um, I now understand and looking back is really connected to, um, 
a realization that I was having even as a young child uh, about the misalignment between what I felt inside and what I wanted to be and what I thought life was about and the entire thing that they were asking me to do, you know, uh, the system, the system the as system. it were. Yeah. Uh, and, Did you have you know, siblings? I, Did you have siblings or I, no? I, I had a sibling, um, but she came along when I was 19 and she was my half sister. Okay. Um, okay. Unfortunately, okay. she passed uh, in 2020. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I was raised without siblings. I enjoyed having a sibling for uh, 28 years. And I am once again without siblings. Is your was your dad a carpenter, an entrepreneur, or did he work for somebody? He was an entrepreneur. Uh, he eventually wound up going and and working for somebody. And I think when he first came up here, he made I think he was making a go of it. That was his entrepreneurial debut. So it's kind of appropriate that I'm back here making my entrepreneurial debut in the same town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, forty years later. Um, and so yeah, he was a builder. He did eventually. Uh, it was a tough time to be uh, a solo construction worker right back then. And mm. it always is, I, I suppose. Um, so over the, over the course of time, he did go to work for uh, larger companies. Okay. And he uh, later in his career was a superintendent. He built, uh, you know, military ba- barracks and hospitals and schools and, and actually wound up his, his career started here as an entrepreneur builder and his career ended in the Upper Peninsula building um schools so it's kind of poetics are they still alive are they still around still alive still around uh dad is right is in florida right now mom and and her husband uh live here in marquette always have my dad my mom was a teacher for 38 years were they divorced Uh, when you were young or they divorced after you grew up yeah it was younger i was uh i think i think it was maybe seven when they divorced and so a lot of my formative years were in the context of uh being raised by a single uh, public school teacher uh, and pretty, you know, pretty meager uh, providing. I mean, it wasn't, we had everything we needed, but it was a, it was a, a class experience that was, you know, it was, it was a struggle at times. Um, mm-hmm. Were you so a good that, kid? Were you a good kid or were rebel? No, I wasn't a good kid. I was, I, <laughs> I was a good kid. I was a good kid. I didn't follow the rules. I was a good kid. I was just not good at following the rules. Oh, I, I questioned see. things. I was I was a spirited <laughs> kid. I was, uh, you know, they couldn't tell if I had uh, a disorder or a gift. And I still am not sure. I'm still not sure about What's that. What's the biggest trouble you ever got in? Did you, you get arrested? Have you been arrested? Anything? I've, I like have that? been arrested. Yes, I have. I've been arrested in my in my days. And I've been arrested as in, pl- as in plural. plural. Yep. Yep. And I don't say that with pride. I say that with simply experience and honesty. Uh, You know, I've had some run-ins with the law in my life and uh, those are all well behind me now. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, part of the reason that I don't drink is is because of that, but um, Ah, uh, you know, and that's just, uh, you know, these are all things that, that uh, they're part of my story. They're part of my story. Is that tough, by the way, when you're at a social event and everybody's got a cocktail and you can't grab one, is that hard? Not at all. Not anymore. Uh, it was when I decided to stop drinking, but not anymore. Not, not even a little. I'm not even tempted. I don't. I'm. I consider myself blessed at this point to not be burdened with uh, with that social expectation. So what about it's, it's, uh, what about cannabis? What about other recreational stuff? Anything? I've gone off and on with cannabis in my life and with other uh, recreational things in my life. Um, uh, I at at this point I prefer uh, to be as present as possible, and I, <laughs> I I prefer to focus on the things that are um, 
meaningful in my life that that uh, are going to last how know? do you relax how do you like how do you you know <laughs> i don't know right now uh so my current <laughs> my current context is um i don't know if we would call it relaxing but you know i, I get a little bit of time to myself in the morning between okay. 4 45 and 6 you know right. somewhere between 4 45 and 6 uh, there is the quiet time in the house where none of my four kids are awake, uh, and and my my uh, you know my devices aren't yet going off really, and I can read a book or or I could just sip a coffee and look out the window or go for a walk. So it's it's really about maximizing those moments. And um, I, I'll be honest, I mean it's it's very hard to relax right now. Well, I'm an entrepreneur yeah. with I'm an entrepreneur with with children ranging from four. To 21, and they all live at home, and we've just come through a, 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 a you know a, a pandemic that's still happening, but we're going to pretend that it's not. And you know, World War III is trying to start, and uh, uh, and I've, I've I've got three or four businesses I'm trying to run. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I don't I don't really if I don't just make little spaces to relax throughout the day, even even before we get on here, just sitting in here and taking two minutes to meditate into a set of setting of calm right as it's four to uh, 21 all at home uh so you're married uh are and all four children from the same wife no i've been married three times uh oh. this is the third time is a charm this is a good way to go you say oh but actually this is a really good way to have a solid marriage get okay. married three times for because <laughs> you get two tries to figure out all the things that are wrong with you that you need to work on as you bring it into the third marriage when you're hopefully mature enough to realize that it's never about the other person it's really about you and the four children are they all from your marriages or any from hers uh so our eldest comes from my wife's first marriage he's 21 and he's a i consider him my son Okay. Uh, his his dad has been um, pretty much checked out of the picture for most of his life, mm. uh, and then the two middle daughters are from my second marriage, uh, and then Elliot, our youngest, is is our kind of unifying baby. Uh, the, the two of ours, um, Claire Man. and I, and then and she kind of brings the family together in a way, you know. Uh, so it's what's your wife do? Well, she's my chief operating officer at this point, and she also uh, manages a. Uh, manages some Airbnb stuff for her folks. And uh, she, prior to that, she was a, an entrepreneur herself. She ran uh, a cleaning business uh, for 14 years. And uh, I saw that. that, I saw that, I saw that. And by the way, tell her, I love her LinkedIn picture. It's so awesome. A little LinkedIn. I love it too. I took that picture. I had made that picture. Uh, yeah, no, that's great. I love it. I mean, that's, that's exactly the kind of uh, attitude that she's got. And Is it? Okay. Uh, she's, she's right. a fiery, uh, a fiery, no shit person, you know, and, and just stronger than anybody I know. And um, uh, to well, a fault at to times. Be, yeah. She has to be fiery and strong. Cause when she met you, you you're like, yeah, yeah. I, own, I own two or three businesses. <laughs> I've been married twice. I got kids. And she's like, what the hell? What a train wreck this guy is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, how long have you been married, you guys? What? Uh, five years. Five, five years. years, okay. All right, very good. Been together good. Eight, eight, just over eight, almost nine years now. Been together. All right, very good. Walk, walk us through your career. So uh, you don't have to give us all the details. I know you, IBM uh, it was a major part of your, your background. But kind of walk yeah. us through the career progression Um and just tell us a little bit about your professional career before you started Lucid Coast. 
Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to take that one all the way back to my dad was a carpenter. Okay. And maybe even before then, right? Because uh, even as a kid, like a young kid, and everybody does the, uh, the lemonade stand or whatever. I, maybe not everybody, but I feel like almost everybody at some point does a lemonade stand, right? But I was doing lemonade stands and car washes and producing circuses in my backyard. And uh, be, not because of necessarily of the money, but because of uh, this, this interesting drive to create, you know, and to, to engage and to do, I think. Um, so I think there's, I, I point that out only because I think that what I've come to realize is that I have been an entrepreneur all of my life, but didn't really have the awareness of that or the language for that or the encouragement for that or any real examples in my life until much later in my life. But I had that, that nugget, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't say any little nugget, you know, it's not quite fair to say any examples, but reasonable examples that I felt inspired and, and like, that's what I want to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's important to my story because it, it not having those examples, not knowing what was possible was fundamental to my buying into, you know, the narratives that I bought into throughout my life uh, and, instead of creating my own. And I think a lot of us do that. We, we choose our path based on known potential paths, right? Right. Yes. And before, before the internet, he didn't have those examples. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, my dad was of course an entrepreneur and, and, and uh, I, I worked for him. Uh, a lot of my entrepreneurial experience comes from my dad. Uh, I think it was really his method of saving money on childcare. Uh, because when I would spend time with my dad in the summers, um, I was, I had a lot of jobs, right? Everything from picking strawberries. I was a weed picker on a strawberry farm when I was like 10 and my dad made me ride my bike to the, to the strawberry patch and back instead of getting a ride. And, you know, he would forever be lining me up to mow somebody's lawn or paint somebody's shed or dig a ditch or, and then when I got old, I got old enough to be meaningfully, uh, you know, usable around the job site. Then, then of course I was a, a gopher uh, in the construction sense, and then I was uh, taught to swing a hammer, and then I eventually was, you know, adept at carpentry, at least framing carpentry. Um, okay. So I did I did some of that, you know, to support myself in the summers and make a little money as a teenager, and then later in life I leaned back on that a couple times uh, just to to get by. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, and so so I had that as background, and I, of course I worked at shoe stores and. Pizza, pizza shops and Hardee's and, you know, big boy. And so I have a lot of career basis in from the time I was 10, you know, uh, that, that I count as part of where I am today. Because sure, it, absolutely. It, yeah, definitely it, shaped it, you in it, many ways. Yep. It shaped me. It formed something that I, I don't see sometimes in, in others, especially when I look at hiring and developing re employees over my career. You know, I can see a marked difference between, generations or cultures that had to struggle to get there versus Absolutely. not right it really is and by so, the way we could we could we could pause right there and do a whole episode on what you just said hundred <laughs> uh, percent we could probably do a, a year-long series on that uh, yeah uh, so so anyway you know i had this uh, i dropped out of high school in my junior year uh, because oh. i had i had gotten to the point by then that i was I was not seeing the point and a lot of kids don't, right? But I was really not seeing the point of this structure that I was being 
What year through. was that? Junior junior year. What year was that? Ju- junior year was uh, what was it? It was probably 1989. Oh no, 1990. It was okay. 1989 or 90. All right. And uh, and I, you know, what precipitated that was I had I had actually uh, my mom had helped me out. She knew I was having all these struggles with school. She connected me with a an educational consultant. Um, I don't even know what his real title was, but he worked with like the intermediate school districts and he helped, oh. uh, you know, come up with alternative education pathways. Um, and so I worked with this guy and put together a, a proposal. Uh, it was a 27 page proposal that wasn't just paper. It was actually arrangements with, um, you know, Bart Stupak, who was then our congressman, uh, an internship with Bart Stupak for a, for a political science credit. And the job that I was doing at a shoe store, Endicott Johnson, my manager had signed on to a course of things he was going to teach me about business management and specifically do things that were going to be, an, an, it was an, an apprenticeship, basically. And then I was going to say, hey, I'll meet my state requirements by taking these tests and I'll test out in these modules. And I was, uh, I, I had to present that whole thing to the school board and was wow. soundly, soundly rejected uh, <laughs> because, of course, you know, back in the 80s, you couldn't set a precedent like that. Uh, you know, hey, we got to make sure everybody goes through the same thing and gets that. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, devastated by that, the, the consultant I was working with said, well, drop out and do it anyway. And I'm like, well, I, what? He didn't drop out. You're miserable, right? And I was, yeah, you put this thing together, right? Yeah, we'll do it anyway. And so I did. I, I walked in the next day, you know, dropped out of high school, and uh, and I took my GED a year later, and then um, uh, I went off to uh, a community college as a first step to going to college, and then let's just say I was smart and I was motivated, but maybe I wasn't mature enough for college yet because okay. I wound up diving pretty heavily into. Uh, uh, into the more social aspects of, of collegiate life, uh, which unfortunately wound up resulting in my uh, my earliest venture capital uh, backers backing out of our deal in the sense that my folks and my family said, you know, you're going to have to pay for college yourself now. Um, so because I did, you know, I had did a semester, a really good semester, but then I at a community college, but then at the I went to the university and I kind of partied it up and blew it. And anyway, that yeah. drove me to the military because at that time uh, we, were, we were we were in the midst of, you know, right in between Gulf War one and two. And uh, uh, there was a lot of patriotism floating around. And I was a teenage male uh, and I was susceptible to that. And I needed a job and I needed a future. And I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And that was very counter to me as a person. But timing is everything, you know, and they and got you sign- uh, and you joined the army. I joined the army and now, um, let me, and let I, me pause you right there. Based on everything you've told me about you so far, not wanting to follow rules, do things differently, not seeing the, these processes, all this stuff is like, ah, it's bullshit. And then you join the army, which is like the most structured organization on the planet. That, well, yeah. here's where the importance of narratives and marketing come in. Right. Because okay. uh, I was, uh, you know, if even you think about this, the narrative of public school, is if you go there and do your stuff and get good grades and you get into a good college and then you'll get a good career. And then you'll, that narrative has proven to be a whole lot of bullshit in the latest <laughs> economy, right? It really has. That's a, it's an outdated knowledge. It's an outdated construct, yeah. uh, but it's a narrative that's very powerful in our culture. Um, at the time, the narrative that was very powerful in our culture was patriotism. 
was Gulf War was, hey, we've got, you know, it, it was all around me. And and uh, and also free college, pay for school, get a skill. And so it was it was a narrative and a marketing that hooked me. And I was 18. You know, what in the hell did I know uh, about myself? I didn't realize the things I'm sharing with you about myself now. I had no clue of back then. Right. right? Yeah, understood. When you're so so that but the good news was that that. Um, that experience reaffirmed for me that I don't follow rules well, and I'm not supposed to be in a highly structured environment. And I'm a creative uh, visionary and a risk taker. And and even but in you the made military, it, you made it. Om- you made it almost four years, but I noticed you got out just to, just a tad early. What did you do? Did you did you did you go in and say, "Look, I want out early," or what happened? I did. I went in uh, and I said, "I want out early," and my commander said, ha, "That's funny." No, <laughs> and uh, and so I said, "Well." you know what, there's gotta be, there's, there's a way, right? There's every process has an exception. And so I committed to figuring out what the exception was. And as it happened, I had been going to university of Maryland, uh, taking psychology courses. They have, they have campuses all over, uh, all over at military bases, extension courses. And that had, that had me in the library on the military base that I was on, which had me oftentimes perusing, uh, regulations that I I didn't know existed. Uh, but it, 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 it gave me the tools to go and research, like there must be a way, right? And I found uh, that there was in fact a clause uh, and, a, and a program in the military that allowed for a commanding officer to let a, a, a soldier leave transition up to six months early for the purposes of going back to school. Okay. All right. So I thought, great, I got him now. I printed out the, the, the uh, regulation. I went into my commanding officer's office and I handed it to him. I said, sir, I'd like you to reconsider. And he looked at it and he said, no. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I wrote my congressman. Uh, and I wrote wow. my congressman with letters of reference from uh, a bunch of former employers and from people in my sphere and from some of the commanding officers that I'd worked with. And I put together a whole package and I explained it in a letter, uh, everything that was happening. And I put my acceptance to Northern Michigan University in there and I sent it all not knowing that when a serviceman uh, sends a letter to his congressman, his or her congressman, it automatically triggers a congressional investigation. Oh, I so I was that. called. Okay, that's, I that's an interesting tip. I, I, I didn't know it either, but uh, with a with a complaint, right? And so uh, I was called very quickly back to the commanding officers. You know, with, <laughs> within a couple of weeks, and uh, and and I met a very different, uh, very red faced captain at that point, uh, who was. Mm. Who was pretty frustrated with me, but now I couldn't do anything. He was like, uh, you know, like he had to sign the papers. It was being forced. Uh, he was pissed off. He let me know it, but he had to sign me out and honorable get discharged. And it was time for me to go. Did so you? I, but you I, were in. You were in long enough to get school paid for. Though you still got the GI Bill. Still, yeah. I invest. Yeah, I got my benefits, and I, uh, I'm, I got my VA benefits, and I did my time. You know, I served, right. and uh, right. and I and I followed regulations. To you know, it's not that I don't know how to leverage rules; it's I don't like them. All right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you get out, you get out, and you go to uh, Northern Michigan University, or yeah, then what happens? Yeah, I, I came back to NMU, and uh, at the time, I didn't still really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, yeah. I had been taking a lot of psych courses and previously in life, I'd been involved in a lot of theater and that had been a dream of mine, but uh, I saw a lot of my, a lot of my friends going into theater and not making any money. And so I was thinking, well, yeah, but I need to have a career. I've got to be responsible again with the narrative, right? The narrative, 
the narrative of our country and of our, of our Western society was, well, you got to make money and you have to have status. And I didn't consciously think those things. I just felt it inside. Oh, I'm worried. I need to say, I need something that's going to get me a job. Uh, and so I picked uh, business because I figured going, you know, going into business, there was, there was always something you could do. And then this thing called the World Wide Web was happening. Right. And, uh, and it intrigued me because I'd played with tech a little bit when I was young. I had some early exposure to C and to, you know, some basic programming on old uh, Commodore consoles, whatever my school could afford back then. Yeah. But I never really understood or had access to that sort of technology until I was just about ready to transition from the military. And I had I had been thinking about staying in the military and taking an information technology path with my com my communications background. Uh, but, you know, I, that's when I decided, no, I'm going to go back to school. And so I picked a double uh, course of education, which was really business and computer information systems. OK, OK. Um, and it turned out to be a, a pretty good uh, basis for me because I, I, I was naturally pretty uh, inclined toward business skills and naturally curious about systems and technology. And I was really fascinated by the way in which technology was connecting people. Uh, okay. okay. And that, that was what reeled in my interest the most and what got me into networking to start with. My, my career at IBM began when I happened across uh, a, a fortunate turn of events and, and was recruited by an IBMer. Ah. And uh, it was actually, at the time, I was recruited by IBM and Accenture. And uh, Accenture was, um, was it called Accenture back then? It might have been, it was called Anderson still back then, Anderson Consulting. Okay. Um, so, and I remember at my IBM interview, I, they asked me, I talked to a lot of different uh, individuals, but one of the guys was a networking um, practice lead, practice manager. And that was what really drew me to networking was the, the network was the core of what, of how technology was going to unite people and, and expose people to different worldviews and, and bring people together in different new ways that I could just sense was going to be something big. And I don't know why I sensed that. I don't know why like, at that age, I wasn't thinking about it in the terms of, in the terms I am today. I wasn't thinking about it in economic or social impact or um, values or even global socioeconomic uh, parameters. It was just this, this sense inside that something important about connecting people and the network being the mechanism for that was what drew me into that. And, and anyway, long story short, that's when I started my IBM career. Yeah, and then you spent many years, what, a couple of different stints there too, maybe, right? I think. Yeah, um, so I actually, I might, I might hold the record of most number of times quitting IBM and coming back to IBM <laughs> because um, I, I, had, I had resigned from IBM at one point um, on the back of, a, of an experience that, that left me kind of jaded. You know, I, I was mm. several years into my career, I had been in a position where uh, my entrepreneurial nature and my, my looking at systems and seeing them broken and wanting to fix them nature had resulted in my getting a position that was a national leadership position. And uh, I invested a lot of time and effort that year and was, was given assurances uh, that, you know, if certain things happened, then certain investments were going to come and, and the, you know, uh, the, the practice vision was going to unfold. And I did a great job that year. And, 
Uh, and <laughs> unfortunately, it, it didn't end the way that I had anticipated. And that was because, well, you know, you did a great job, but other parts of the business didn't. So we can't invest after all. And oh, by the way, here's a set of golf balls for this year's bonus, even though you hit 139% <laughs> of your objectives. Uh, and that's that was my first resignation because I, I had put so much into this, this notion and done everything that they said and done it not only well, but better than expected. And then was given the old, ah, better luck next time, champ. So, so uh, you know, I, it, as it happened when I resigned, I also had a, a, a job offer from a different company in my back pocket. You always want to have some option ready to go. And okay. I went over to a different company. It was, uh, it was a division of France Telecom called Equant back then. And now it's FT Orange or Orange Business Services. I don't know what they are these days, but uh, I, a group of uh, folks that I knew and were connected to had gone over to help that organization start its North American uh, consulting business. And I uh, took a, a position in leading the uh, establishment and the first big win of, a, uh, of their outsourcing, uh, their North American outsourcing organization. They were a so, smaller, they were a smaller group than how many employees at the time? Uh, you know, in, in North America, we probably had like 200 people at that oh, time. Okay. Okay. Overall, you know, it was a small, much smaller business, you know, like a $4 billion business versus a $100 billion business, right? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, it, so tremendously different than IBM, but also a lot of autonomy, a lot of entrepreneurial thinking in the North American component, because okay. it was new and it was, uh, it was expected to be a growth um, division. So there was investment being made. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that, in that, I spent a year and a half there, helped them get that that first deal uh, landed. It was a sixty million dollar outsourcing deal with an entertainment company. Um, learned a can lot. I stop about you? Can, I, can I Can I pause you right there? Yeah. Is that so? So is one of your is one of your biggest strengths at that time um, the ability to the people skills, the networking, the conversations with the biz dev. You know, let me build a relationship. Let me sell you a product. I mean, is that is that one of your top strengths right there at, at that time? I, I would I would categorize it more in the realm of um, uh, of, of solution visioning and clarification. You know, okay. like I, I well, I went from networking. If I back up in my career, I went from networking into systems management within the first five years of my career. And, and primarily that was because although I was interested in the network and the fascinated by its impact, I found that I didn't really get excited about going deeper and deeper and deeper into packet tracing, right? And, and, and the fundamental depth of the technology, I could, I could get it and I did like it, but it didn't light me up as much as um, in my network days, I would go in and do networking assessments. I would troubleshoot. I would do traffic monitoring. I would look at the architecture. I would, you know, categorize a number of challenges that an organization was having and then inspect the network to find out how the network was impacting those issues. And in most of those engagements, it wasn't the network. You know, we, we would tweak, tweak one or two things, but I found really quickly that things like, hey, you were, your application development folks built a distributed uh, application uh, on a network that's still using green screens and it's not behaving pro properly, right? Because they didn't think about the, the architecture. It's not, it was the architecture of the application or it was the expectation of the business that got mistranslated into an RFP that had nothing to do with what the business mm -hmm. was trying to do, or it was change management. Somebody moved something. 
And so I, I found that I was much more adept at seeing how the symptom that they were experiencing traced back to the root, whether it was in the process domain, the organizational domain, the tools domain, I see. Uh, you know, and I really liked that. So I became a, a systems management um, consultant and later architect and leader. Mm. And that put me in a position where I was always going in and out of organizations for a long time. What I did was, you know, eight to 12 week engagements that were assessment strategy deals. Mm -hmm. And I would go in and diagnose, you know, like a, like a general practitioner or something, you'd go in and diagnose an organization with an IT lens, but always you have to connect that to what is IT doing or not doing for the business. And so I was going into very large financial institutions, um, uh, manufacturing institutions, organizations, uh, lots of um, uh, a little bit of retail, a lot of healthcare, okay. uh, and and then at some point, it sometimes it would be smaller businesses as well, like little regional, uh, you know, counties. And uh, I worked at the Louisiana Department of Revenue one year, so a lot of different types of clients from from SMB to mega global enterprise mm -hmm. level, mm -hmm. and finding that across all of those, I saw patterns, uh, and and I saw patterns of of broken systems or of misaligned systems, and. That started then heading me down the, the direction of, you know, those, my tendency to do that was very potent in that realm because I was the guy that was talented at sitting between the salesperson yes. and the, the, the customer and figuring out how to say, look, I know you want to sell your stuff guy, but what we're really doing here is we're trying to solve a problem. You're not hearing the problem. Let me help you understand what we really need to sell them. I'm not trying to, you know, and, and so it was an interesting role and an exciting one because I could always find new places to do, you know, eight to 12 weeks. I go in and help I diagnose to build a plan, build a roadmap, create a team, rally the team, get them all gelled around a vision. And then, okay, you guys go and execute, maybe bring in some partners to do the rest of the work. And then I'm off to the next deal. Love and it. So that, now, love it. You're building your career, you're building your strengths, but at some point that little entrepreneurial bug is down there in your gut and you're like, man, I, you know, I could, I could take the same service and do it on my own and probably make more money than instead of making IBM rich. <laughs> right. Well, and it was almost, and it, it was never about, that's the funny thing for me. It really has never been about the money. Okay. I have this weird, uh, I have this, it's a flaw, it's to a flaw, right? And so I have to make sure that in my business, I've got somebody who cares about making money very, very rigorously um, <laughs> to, to kind of, uh, you know, offset my, my tendency to just believe, you know what, if we do the right things and if we follow our vision and we build the right culture, the money will come. And, that is and that's true always to a, true to a certain extent, but <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. You have to have pragmatic lenses and you can't just always, yes. that's, I realize that as a default setting. And so I have to look and go, am I, am I, am I, where are my blind spots? And I look to my team for that. Love it. Um, yeah. So, so I think more so than the, gee, I could make money doing this. What my experience of entrepreneurship at IBM continued to put me on is this cycle of, seeing opportunities and creating a solution or a pathway to leverage those opportunities in sales deals led to a bigger role where I started doing that uh, for a practice and then for an entire geography when I moved to New Zealand and I was, I was uh, a growth markets um, 
effectively a director, although he never gave me the title. I replaced a director, uh, but I got a band, band, a band 10, which is just blow. Uh, so, but what I did then was I, I, I stepped out of, out of my norm. You know, I had been comfortable in those practice leadership jobs, but now here came a whole multi-country, multi-geography, uh, 37 countries and, and cultures uh, opportunity to lead a services organization. And that was super humbling because now I had to run a business and do what I had been doing all my career, but I had to do it with dozens of different country management that okay. didn't really, they didn't, I didn't heck, I couldn't make them do anything, right? I, I held PL for my global uh, GM for that old, whole growth market, but there were six or seven others of me that held PL for different service lines that were trying to vie for the attention of the sales teams and the country managers and the in-country teams who actually did, you know, execute it. And so it became a, a, a scaling thing, right? How do you scale the skills that I had learned across not only countries, but oftentimes countries um, who are culturally at odds with, with yes. you individually, culturally at odds with one another, and who don't, at the end of the day, have to listen to you. There's nothing that you have over them. And so it, it, it was about um, culture, not culture change. It was about culture uh, symbiosis, learning okay. how to be symbiotic with, you know, amid cultural differences and find the shared spaces of value to, you know, to team, to build yeah. consensus. And that was what I had been really good at doing. I, you know, because when, when I was going into those organizations and even today, right, I go into any of my clients at an enterprise level and the problems are almost always the same. <laughs> they, they manifest themselves differently, but they're almost always the same. And a lot of times it really comes down to uh, inadequate attention paid to the importance of culture and buy-in and consensus and vision and communication, human, you know, the human, el the human, element. The human element. It, it yeah. always, it always comes into play. Right. I mean, I love, I love technology as well. And, you know, I appreciate all of it, but uh, at the end of the day and until robots are into are talking to robots and robots are doing the work and we're doing until that happens, there's always a human element in there somewhere that somebody like you has got to connect the dots with. That's right. And it's, and I, honestly, until we're all, you know, in those pods from the matrix and right. <laughs> exactly. there's always going to be a human element. Yes. Uh, so, so yeah, so that, that, so that all got me, you know, all of that was really important to my ultimately realizing I was an entrepreneur and I could do it myself. But even then it was never with the intent to build another IBM or another IT services company. It really wasn't. Okay. It was. It was a. It was a different path that I was on. And I was uh, when I first when I came back to the United States. Um, I was doing a global role and uh, and for almost ten years here, I, I ran a global organization, two different global uh, teams within IBM uh, from Marquette, Michigan, and I was doing it largely from home. Um, but what I, what I recognized, because now I came back to Marquette and, in, and I was a father and I had two little children and they were getting ready to go to school. One was in school, one was in preschool. And although the, the buildings had changed and there were you know, more accoutrement here in, in Marquette and there was a little more culture, 
what had really happened is that we'd gone from an iron town and a industry town and a port town um, to a playground town. Uh, uh, come visit us. Uh, be like us. We got you know. Come here. Bring people here so that they can support our region with their tourist dollars. And whether okay. that was outdoor rec or you know building uh, you know cannabis stores on every corner or <laughs> bars on every corner or coffee shops, restaurants, we became a destination economy. Okay. And now I'm looking at my kids and thinking, well, what are their opportunities to stay here if they want it? You know, if they wanted to be in this region, it's a beautiful place. I mean, I, I've been all over the world and I'll tell you in terms of place, this is one of the best there is. Uh, there's just so much converging right here in, in terms of quality of life for me, right? Uh, that that um, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to, to, to build a life. But if my kids wanted to, how would they do that? You know, and, and what would be the opportunities? And if, you know, they could be, you know, one of my kids is very artistic and she, she loves to paint and draw and sing and play music. So in that regard, lots of opportunities here because there's a lot of local music, there's art is, is very part of our culture. However, uh, the dynamics of, uh, of our U.S. economy are, and of our approach to economic development in this town specifically, have now manifested in a point where many of the people who do those things can't live here anymore. You just mm -hmm. can't afford it. You know, I you see. can't possibly be, but now you still have to, you know, they, they need to be here because the tourism industry depends on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, where do they live? And then, so now they're starting to live dozens of miles out of town. Uh, so anyway, all of that, is important because as I was looking at my friends who were part of that community, the art artists and the musicians and the actors, um, and I was witnessing their struggle uh, and, and realizing that there is so many more ways for us to develop an economy in rural America than trying to invite people or big companies to come set up shop and, and develop opportunity. That network, that network gives everybody the opportunity to create value in the world that you don't have to be, I'll tell you what, the world doesn't need any more billionaires. In fact, if I'm a billionaire, I want you to come and personally accuse me of failure and call me to task. Because if I'm ever a billionaire, I have failed. I have failed as a human being. And I believe every billionaire out there, frankly, has fundamentally failed as a human being because that's just not what it's about. It really uh, isn't. So, it really isn't, isn't it? We can pause right there for just a second. Um, had a, I had a guest on the podcast recently uh, that I can't, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but he said something to the effect of, you know, how can I drive around and see massive poverty in certain neighborhoods? How can there be places in the world where children don't have fresh water, but we have billionaires building rocket ships just so they can ride them into space and be cool. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And I mean, look, I, I guess on the one hand, we can all look at that. And that's what capitalism, as we've built it, it depends on. A, a small part of us, all of us, looks at that and goes, wow, cool. You know, yeah. and, and I admit it, even me, I look at that and I'm like, wow, going to space, wouldn't that be cool? But if we yeah. think about the cost of that, and if we think about the, the opportunity cost of that, as opposed to what 
could be done. And you, you mentioned kids. Uh, one of the formative experiences for me that I share with my kids over and over again was going to India for the first time when I was in that position. And I was picked up at the airport. Now, I wasn't a very high executive. I was, you know, band 10 in IBM parlance, which isn't even in the executive ranks yet. Uh, so I wasn't an important person, but the Indian culture um, is such that I was a, a, a geography leader. And so there was a certain respect there. And one of my employees had arranged for my car driver to pick me up at the airport. And I get there and it was, you know, let's, let's say it was a little over the top, right? I'm, I'm a kid from Marquette, Michigan, uh, grew up, you know, the, the child of, a, of a, a single mom educator. And I walk off out of the plane and there's this guy there, all the other people are with, there with hand scrawled signs, but there's one guy with a brass pole has a wooden plaque and it's got Mr. Glendon on it. And I'm like, Oh good Lord, what, what is happening? And it was really sort of like this weird feeling. It was kind of cool, but also kind of like, cause everywhere this super crowded right. airport and it's only one person like that. And we walk out and, and out of nowhere comes an assistant to this guy who grabs my luggage and we walk to this very nice car, not, not your typical uh, rent a car, rental car that you'll get in India but a really nice black town car kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going, this is interesting. That we also, I get in and we're driving to the hotel that I was going to stay at. And on the way there, we're, we're driving past the edge of the slums. And I looked out and there's a lot of traffic. You stop, go, there's honking everywhere, chaos and noise. Cause that's how India is. And, and I, I looked out the window and there were three little girls that must've been triplets because they were equally, sized they looked alike by the side of the road in front of this little tent that was made out of trash where there was what i took to be their mother cooking something over some little pot trash fire mm. but those little girls were dancing around and smiling isn't that and waving amazing? isn't that that's crazy wow and i yeah. thought man that's here I am, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I grew up, I grew up in Marquette, Michigan, child of a blah, blah, blah. I got my little story. Right. But, and I'm feeling like, wow, I've really made it because here I am in this town car and wow, I never would have anticipated that, but look, and at that point in my career, I was already, I, I'm like that moment, my, my first daughter was born and she was back home in New Zealand. And it just was, my heart sunk because I'm like, I, I haven't made it anywhere. Where have I made it? Where have I made it? I've made it. I've made it to the point where I can now see the price of of overvaluing money. You know, I've made it to the so, point where I could. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how I got on that, Jag Steve. I'm sorry. You're gonna have to. No, it's okay. Drag, I think it's a great. Drag I think me it's back, great. but I want. I think it's a great topic. Let's wrap it up with. Let's wrap up that topic with this. Um, just I, here's how I like to say it to people that I know. Um, just because you have a conscience and you feel you have an emotional feeling for, for people that are uh, in poverty like that, that doesn't mean you're a socialist. It just means you look at the situation and go, this doesn't feel right. Like th there's gotta be a better balance than what we have. Right. And, and so that's exactly how I feel. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a capitalist, you know, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't vote to be a socialist country. However, I do have those same emotional feelings. And I told that story recently when I was in Naples, Florida, uh, and there's many places like this in the country, but Naples, 
I mean, damn, if you're right next to the water, it's all billionaires and you do not have to drive very far east from Naples. I mean, less than 10 miles and you see poverty and, and you, yeah. and I've, yeah. and I've, I've driven that stretch where I'm just, and I've seen, I had the exact same feeling. I'm like, man, this is, doesn't feel right. Like this doesn't feel yeah, right. Yeah. You can, you can, you can throw a rock from this, the, the giant complex, the Scientology complex in Clearwater <laughs> to, to some absolute slums. Right. And, and there's these mansions there. So absolutely. And you're hitting on the core of it here. It's I'm, I, I, clearly here I am in a co-working space. I started a company. I'm, I'm obviously a capitalist uh, right. in, in, the, in the sense that I'm pursuing that end. Right. Um, socialist, socialism has a lot of different connotations. But when I lived in New Zealand, um, we had two children and it cost nothing, zero dollars, including six months of prenatal care in home, six months of postnatal care in home, four weeks of paternity leave, it cost us nothing. And I got time off to bond with my kids, not because of socialism, but because they recognize that any country's children are a valuable, perhaps the most valuable resource that they've got. Mm -hmm. And time with parents and children is important to a fundamentally well-ordered society. Mm -hmm. And so they want to support that. And we're paying taxes anyway. So some of that goes over here. Okay, so look, if you want to define that as socialism, then the United States of America is just as socialist as any, but our, <laughs> our beneficiaries of socialism are corporations, non-people. So, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it, it, to me, Steve, it's not even about, whenever you say ist or ism, what you're really talking about is classism. Mm. What are, you know, and, and if you're a socialist, that's a class of people. A capitalist is a class of, of it's an ideology, right? And what I love the most about um, entrepreneurship, that spirit and technology is that technology and, and the spirit of entrepreneurship together have the power to finally help transcend classism. Ooh, that's good. Point. It's not, it's not working yet, right? We're in the, we're in this real chaotic phase where it's confusing us all as human beings. But part of what I'm trying to do with my company is figure out how do you build a company that, that, that actually pioneers a new way of being a company that isn't about the isms and isn't it about, you, it's not about classism. Can I ask you, how does the technology, how do we do that? How do we eliminate the classism without forcing humans into a specific narrative that somebody higher up is driving, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer, but what I do have is an active experiment. I have an active experiment and that's my company. That's, that's what I'm- Let's talk about I, it. Let's talk about it, by the way, lucidcoast.com, right? And that, and you started it. So I want to make sure I get this out there for the listeners because I know we're edging up on our time here. So it's lucidcoast.com. And by the way, Keith, yeah. Glendon, Keith Glendon, of course, also on, on LinkedIn where you can connect with him there. Give us the, give us the Lucid Coast elevator pitch go for it uh well i'm going to give you the lucid coast corporate elevator pitch first okay and then i'll give you the, and then i'll give you the philosophical because this okay. this is a this has been a challenge for me uh if you go to our website today what you're going to find is a very clean very simple very straight to the point I saw pragmatic that. this is what we do and yep. and if i were to tell you my elevator pitch we focus we're a technology innovation company 
that focuses on supporting utilities and critical infrastructure around IT service management, enterprise asset management, and cybersecurity in Michigan. That's it. Now, I've come to that story brand because telling the story of the purpose of Lucid Coast is really about talking about the Lucid Coast way. And that's really what we're doing. The, the instantiation of being an IT services company will continue to be a part of the company. Okay. But it's not the company, right? The, the, the company is really a, a mechanism through which I want to try and experiment with how do we build systems that are less classist? How do we build systems starting with our companies, with the kinds of companies we build? Because, you know, I've talked to people everywhere from, you know, the backwaters of Louisiana uh, to Pakistan, to Palestine, to China, uh, to right here in my own hometown. And no matter what color, creed, religion, sexual orientation they were at the fundamental basis of it all, they wanted the same things in life, the fundamentally same things. And I think corporations are a big part of why, of what screws up the you know, the, 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 uh, the dynamic between people sharing those values and creating together along those values. Um, certainly classism doesn't stop with the corporation, but when we look at what we've done with corporations and how we've anonymized the impact to your neighbor and to the, the people in another country and to the climate and everything else, we've made it very convenient for all of us to go, well, not my fault, I'm not doing it. Uh, you know, I'm a good person even though I hold stock in 20 destructive companies. And, and you know, so, uh, so thus was born, you know, I didn't set out to build a company. I set out to, to build opportunities for people in who were not being given opportunities. Why? I grew up here and I, I, I got lucky uh, and, and found, I got a combination of lucky and risky, I guess, but I, I, I was able to connect with a really cool opportunity. Um, a lot of people in rural America are experiencing the fact that we've been experiencing decline in GDP for the last 15 years. That decline in GDP on a national level almost identically matches the decline of new business starts in America. And even with the uptick of all the entrepreneurship that we see, what, what that entrepreneurship, that brand of entrepreneurship has been focused on highly scalable, very, very... Uh, uh, growth oriented um, and, and in centers of opportunity like Silicon Valley and Boston and, and Austin and, you know, centers, right? And, and that has left uh, traditionally entrepreneurship, I guess, in, in European colonial America, traditionally it was built from entrepreneurship that came about from all over the place, wherever people were, there became opportunity and they created you know, opportunity to, to generate GDP and to generate opportunity for the next generation. But we don't see that as much. Uh, we, see, um, we see, you know, centralization or consolidation mm. with the aim of, of hyper growth with the aim of becoming what? Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Uh, and, you know, I don't need to take pot shots at, at Jeff Bezos. There's enough people that are gonna do that. But, you know, <laughs> I don't oppose the, the, the fact that somebody uh, can amass that kind of money, I guess, but it's, what do you do then? Now what? Yeah. yeah now what? <laughs> anyway, back to Lucid Coast, right? So. Uh, yeah. How many, uh, how, uh, I, 
before I started, I need to get, get before I got to the to, to the point of saying I'm going to start a business. What I was really doing was trying to create channels to opportunity. And the first thing I did is I looked around my community. I looked at schools. I looked at what I had learned about the, the, the internet and realized that, you know, part of the thing was there wasn't enough technology education. Kids didn't realize how they weren't learning how to use devices. They were learning how to be used by devices. And by and large, that's happening mm. all over the country, that's, right? Most that's happening they, right now. <laughs> every day, every day. And our country, I'll tell you, absolutely hands down, our country's the worst. In other yeah. countries, there are there are children being driven to understand how does technology work and why would you use technology and how should it serve humanity? Not here's a here's a device to just make you buy more stuff. Um, <laughs> So, so I started on a crusade that was really about education, uh, coding clubs, getting involved with the school board. Um, I see. In fact, okay. ironically, I sat at the same school board in the same room, in the same chair, at the same table that I was at when I was a kid trying to pitch my idea. But now I was a board member trying to pitch transformational education. That's pretty ideas. good. <laughs> and guess what? I resigned from the school board four years later because you, unfortunately a lot of our systems um, are such that the inertia keeps them the way they are. They're hanging on, That's right? right. And, right. and while I was going through that period, I also became involved with an entrepreneur who became a very good friend and a mentor of mine. Uh, his name is Jeff Nyquist. Uh, he founded a company called Neurotrainer. Uh, he's now six years on. They're, they're doing quite well. Um, but it was a brain training company, but early on, I got involved with him and had the good fortune to go through an I-Corps, an NSF uh, grant application I-Corps project mm. um, program that learned, that taught me the basics of the business plan canvas and the Steve Blank methodology and like all the, how do you start a company in the current context of entrepreneurship, which then opened a whole new door to me uh, and, and consideration of oh, well, there, there's some different ways we might start to create opportunity here. And it's entrepreneurship. It's not just about technology. We have to have the technology education and the entrepreneurship education exposure to get people going. And I, that got me involved with a lot of economic development organizations, with a lot of state organizations. I uh, mistakenly, un, mis, I misunderstood uh, some of the systems uh, sometimes that's a thing you misinterpret what systems are really supposed to do. And so I maybe wasted a little bit of time, but I didn't really waste it. I, I, yeah, I spent funny. a couple of years, I spent a couple of years getting a real good education in, uh, economic development and, and, and politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that led me around to finally deciding that what I really needed to do was, was actually do the thing I was trying to do, create opportunities here at the local level in a different sort of way, building a different kind of company. And so, uh, that process, that process led me ultimately to going, all right, I need to simplify my business model, focus on what we're going to do to make revenue in just tangible capitalist terms mm -hmm. and not tell everybody too much about what we're really doing as a company and how, how the ecosystem of our company, which I, I, I think about it as a platform company, okay. uh, an opportunity platform company and with a purpose of healing. And that's a really strange thing to say as a corporate uh, entity, but I think that the world needs healing, both emotionally, spiritually, physically, uh, you know, ec ecologically, um, and from you an equity lot, standpoint. You, you are a lot deeper as a human being 
than your web, than your company website portrays. Is that is that by design? Are you purposely doing it that way? And why why not why not go deeper with uh, things on your website? Uh, because yeah, the, everything you're saying is is I don't see that reflected uh, on the website. Yeah. Well, and, and that is by design. And if you would have looked at my website a year ago, you would have said, uh, and this was the most common question anyone would ask, what is Lucid Coast? Even my employees, what is Lucid Coast? And what, what, I, what I have come to is this understanding that um, the story I'm trying to tell is still being written okay. <laughs> and I'm still okay. experimenting. Fair and enough. in the meantime, I need to, in the meantime, I have to have a target market. I have to have I see. I see. marketing that speaks to the, to the, to the market that's going to okay. sustain me. So okay. what, what we've done in our platform company is we bring in our revenue by working with enterprise customers who have a need that is in line with our values. So that's why we focus on utilities because we think okay. that the transformation of the utility industry is one of the most important things to support. Uh, it's an existential thing. We've got to transform our use and, and efficiency of energy. So I feel good as a person I and see. it feels in line with values to focus on that industry. And likewise, cybersecurity, safety of people, safety of critical infrastructure, so that's a place that I can start making money that is in line with my values that can I then see. pull in enough revenue to turn around. And the other part of our business is, is investing and not investing in the traditional sense. Because when I say invest, a lot of times that means invest my personal time, invest my employees time, uh, give money away, uh, invest uh, energy and effort and collaboration in a way that's not going to bring me any financial return ever because I understand that what I'm doing here isn't about my lifetime. It's about what it's going to come from, what, what's going to come from this, this lifetime, the, the legacy that we build, the, the waves we put out in the world last beyond our existence. And so should be the case with, with, well, it is the case with corporations, right? You look at an IBM, they've been around 110 years now. Um, they have influenced both good and bad, a hell of a lot of things in this world, and they will continue to do so. And, and if you build a system or a company that's driven by metrics and goals and objectives that are about simply making money, uh, you will invariably leave more harm uh, than good as a person, as an entity, as a corporation. Agreed. So it, it becomes a big, long philosophical thing. And I was trying to figure out how to represent that. So from a branding perspective, where we are, that was phase one of simplify it. I, see. Uh, I had intended in Q1 to get an update, but you know, we have to also manage costs and resources and time. And so right now that's our placeholder, but in development is, uh, additions to our website that really tell us well, the reason I round out our, our yeah I, I sorry the reason I ask questions because the values that you speak of the vision the the bigger goal that you have uh, around why the company exists and what you're doing I think that's a great very cool story uh, that I would like to see uh, on the website in some way whether it's video yeah. or a little more content because I think that would make me as a consumer, that would make me be like, oh, okay, this is cool. I want to, I want to, I want to use these guys. I, out of yeah. all the people I can call, I want to call Keith because 
I like, you know, their mission, their, their value, you know, what, what is their cause and all that. I think that's, and I think millennials love that, of course. And uh, so I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And when you said that, that just, maybe I should get some millennial branding people to work maybe and, and help maybe. Because, 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 yeah be, because maybe. you know what i started out that way i did i started going down that path of, of saying like look I, i'm building culture and purpose first yeah. and yeah. i i you know i funded my company i said we're going to build a company that is and does these things but that. what i found very quickly was um there is there it's scary to start talking about something new and when you <laughs> when you start talking about something that's not only new but will disrupt systems or make cause cause people to question their value structure uh that doesn't endear you to potential customers or partners that is true that is true uh, and and we it, all have to yeah and and hey rider flex you know we're i hear you i'm we're, we're my day job we we're a recruiting firm right i mean the podcast yeah. is great but we how we make money is is we're a recruiting firm and i also as the ceo of rider flex i have to be careful because, you know, I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to piss off large groups of people in any way. That that's right. Clients. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It is. It's, 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 that's a really difficult thing in the information it's a era. Tough thing we're to finding, tough we're finding that that's why this kind of thing is so important. I mean, I really appreciate what you're doing and what Thank every you. podcaster is doing because uh, having long form conversations, having, these yeah. complex issues talked about in a setting that actually allows people to consider them instead of just arguing about them uh, is real important. I could ask you 50 more questions. I'd love to have you back on the show because I think we could go deeper, especially on some social issues and topics that I, I feel, or at least I think that you feel very strongly about that we haven't had a chance to, to, to go into. By the way, have you ever thought about running for office or, or getting into politics? Because I feel like you could do well yeah. there. Uh, I thought about it. My, I thought about it. My school board experience and and my knowledge and insight from friends who are at state level government uh, has has definitely hardened my resolve to never <laughs> never do that. I, I really think uh, you know. I think that private sector, uh, if if we could build companies that behaved more like nonprofits and nonprofits that behaved more like companies, Ooh, then cool. private sector would have a lot a lot to offer. And in fact, what I'm, one of the things I'm really passionate about is the intersection of community, private sector, and education. Uh, education, K-12 education and collegiate education in this country has got to transform. It's built for, a, it was, third, you know, when I was, when I was in kindergarten, it was built for a bygone era. And, and now it's definitely, definitely built for a bygone era. And yet we all kind of realize that but nobody wants to solve that problem. Nobody wants to pay for it. So how can we solve it? We can solve it through public-private partnerships and innovative new ways of transforming skills while transforming education, while transforming the brokenness in industry. And, and if we could figure out how to harness the power of those, uh, I, I think about it as mycelial uh, symbiotic capitalism, right? It's, com it's collective community capitalism. It's mm. We're not going to throw capitalism out the door. Uh, you know, there is a very powerful effect to capitalism um, if we've got to look at isms, you know, but, but, but what if there was something that was more like the mycelial network in the forest and you've got, you know, mushroom fungi that, that are uh, 
organically and and uh, and through natural processes connecting with the resources that they need but not in a parasitic way right they're they're symbiotic symbiotic they're taking the, the nutrients from the, the decaying tree leaves mm-hmm. feeds the fungi and the fungi then create uh, additional uh, you know fertility in the in the soil and they so it, it's an ecosystem that naturally organizes itself it's not one that is organized through command and control. Mm. It's one that is organized through an expression of purpose and, and that purpose interacting with other aligned purposes, right? Uh, and that's, that's kind of the closest thing I can get to describing what, what I'm playing with from an uh, economic standpoint. Um, and from a company standpoint, it's really about, hey, what do we value? Well, first and foremost, if our company isn't serving our people, then we're not then we're not doing it right, right? And if we're not then also serving clients and serving to solve problems, and we're competing, but we're not competing against each other, we're competing against problems. So that's that's kind of the the, the value set that um, you know I, I've expressed it in a few different ways. And if you look at my link or Lucid Coast LinkedIn, there's kind of a the beginning of, of yeah. the definition of the Lucid Coast way. Um, and it's taken shape, but it's a journey. It's because it, this is something that is new. You know, it's not really, it's not even a B Corp what I'm talking about here because B Corps are something different. Um, By the way, for the so listeners, stay, stay tuned, stay tuned. <laughs> and, and speaking of that, for the listeners, lucidcoast.com, you can also email them info at lucidcoast.com. Phone number. or connect with Keith on LinkedIn as well. Keith, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I could go for another hour, but I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it as well. And yeah, anytime I, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff because whenever, whenever I talk about it uh, with another human being, right. it, 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 there's always something that, comes from that in terms of my clarification of how am I going to tell this story and what is it that I'm even trying to do, right? Because uh, when you're trying to find when you're trying to find product market fit uh, for a broad ecosystem vision, man, that's tough. It is. That's a, it, it is. It, it, it's it's yeah. So but you're uh, you're headed in the right direction. I love what you're doing, man. Congrats on where you're at so far. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a great.